You can't use the word revolution, though, can you? No. Oh, you, you threw... I, I, I loved it. You, you threw... I couldn't some, think some of what to say. <laughs> some secret <laughs> things. Like, I was me fabble. You've got to work out how you can... Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hurdy Gurdy Cafe, an hour of interviews, music, and camaraderie. I'm Ryan, and I'll be your host along this crazy adventure through the land of the wheel fiddle. So strap in, and let's see what's cranking in the Hurdy Gurdy community today. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> hey, welcome, everyone, back to the Hurdy Gurdy Cafe podcast. We're here with a really special guest today, Nigel Eaton. Hello, Nigel. Hello, mate. That's good good to see you. Hello, everyone. And we've got uh, Sergio Gonzalez with us, as always. Hello. Excellent. (laughs) And today we're going to start out the podcast with a lovely track from Nigel, a 1986 synth pop experimentation called The Devil Dance. So let's give that a listen, and then we'll return with Nigel and see what we can talk about today. Let's do it. Cool. Thank you. 
so that was a 1986 synth pop experimentation from Nigel Eaton called The Devil Dance. And uh, we're going to go ahead and get rolling. So welcome, Nigel. It's really wonderful to have you with us today. Lovely to be here. Thanks for asking me. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Sergio. Hello, um, everyone. Is, is there anything you'd like to say about what we just listened to? Your, um, your Devil Dance. Yeah. Um, so um, me and um, Paul James, um, a friend from Blosabella, um, we did a um, some music for a puppet show all about Dr. Faustus um, for a British Council music tour. That's really boring. Anyway, we toured all, we went to Brazil and everywhere and toured this in the original Christopher Marlowe oldie worldy English, which is uh, even I couldn't really understand. But anyway, so we wrote the music for it, and I think it's a that's a tune from a, some a scene where one of the puppets is dancing provocatively for um <laughs> for the devil or something. Yeah, I forget what it was. A long time ago. No videos and of that. that was with Juno synthesizers. So it was at old old school synths and stuff. And it was in the days when um, my my first Hurdy Gurdy, the one that got stolen, um, only had unison G chanters. So there's no low melody. So in those days, everything was really sort of high pitched in my world. And uh, in my right. World. But that, that's that's the hurdy gurdy you found like two miles down the road. Is that exactly it's the one that was stolen out of the back? That's of my nice story. Yeah, from um, it was stolen. I, I well, I just rather stupidly parked it my van in um Chinatown in central London with that herd this hurdy gurdy here and um a bass guitar handmade bass guitar Ian Luff's the great Ian Luff's bass guitar and one of the Juno synthesizers gone forever. Mm -hmm. But we got the bass back quite quickly but the hurdy-gurdy that took um 24 years to come Ooh, back i saw it on ebay wow. i saw it for sale on ebay for um it had bids on it and everything and uh, <laughs> christopher eaton double keyboard hurdy-gurdy of course it was gonna have bids on it and I, and I look at the hurdy-gurdies for sale every day really and i saw this and i said to my wife that well that's obviously my hurdy-gurdy and she was going are you sure and i go well yeah it's practically got my name on it <laughs> you know <laughs> and um and it's the double keyboard one and i and i checked out the sort of other things that the guy was selling to see if it was you know guns or uh house breaking equipment for burglaries right <laughs> and i knew it's a wooden stuff it was a um you had a dulcimer and a model of the victory warship and a Model of a Spitfire, and this just this guy, old guy, just liked wooden, interesting things, and he had evidently bought it from a street market down the road, about literally two miles away from us. Probably within a week or two of it being stolen back in 1987. Wow. And um, I rang him up, and I said, "Well, it's mine." He said, "Ah, you know, Frenchman. Oh, Najini Den, I have felt of you. I was going to kick you off there about getting a wheel cover. I don't use wheel covers, I know." And I said, "Yeah, it hasn't got a wheel cover. Do you know what's in my loft with all the other ones?" <laughs> um, but yeah, unfortunately, he didn't get hold of my dad, so we never. I could have had it years ago. Anyway, came back, and it still had the original um, cotton wool that I put on my pink oh, cotton wool. Oh, I had right. never played it. He just sat it on a shelf in his kitchen, a Frenchman's kitchen shelf. Imagine the amount of duck fat that had landed on the <laughs> no wheel cover imagine and it's still suffering a bit i mean half of the wheel is a different color to the other half of the wheel. there's right. all the ingress from gray dwar whatever it's called you know basically goose fat anyway it does it works good yeah and it's a double keyboard one it's the first double keyboard one dad ever made 
Oh, okay. Nico hardware system, but maybe, um, yeah, maybe you can explain a little bit the the double keyboard the the system keyboard. for the for the people that doesn't know it. So um, this is so the normal keyboard then, as you and Ryan know, is the white bit and that black bit. Now these dots underneath, they're actually um, a duplicate of the upper keyboard laid out in such a way where it's, it's too difficult to play a tune on it in its own right, but you can seek out interesting um, chords and intervals um, whilst you're playing the normal keyboard. You, you, well, you have to more or less stop playing the normal, you, you can't play a tune on the upper one and then hold down another note, as you probably know, you, when you're playing something on the first keyboard, you're fully engaged doing that, but it's quite good for playing shapes and gothic introductions to things um that one's not in tune but this is the one that dad made me as the replacement uh for the one that was stolen i was using it in Bella all the time and um wow so that's great sounds huge even 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 through that microphone it's sounding like whoa (laughs) it's too big is it all right See that? Yeah. Can you can, can you lower the camera a little bit so yeah, we can, can see lo- the, the... I'll lower the camera. You can see it a bit better. Lovely. There, there. So this is the one that Dad um, built as a replacement to the one that was stolen. So that's a G drone. That's a normal chanter. And then there's the second keyboard chanter um, keyboard. Then it's straight line. But that's this not how chromatic. you it. oh. It's fully chromatic, but only up to a certain point because you can't go much beyond there. Things get a bit tight, as you can probably imagine. Yes. And then the two together. Wow, wow, okay. Good, isn't it? It does work good. And um, yeah, so uh, that was an added bit of colour that you can use, especially if you're accompanying singers. Mm-hmm. Or, or say you're playing with a bagpiper or something and you're playing for dancing or whatever. And, um, you know, you want to uh, accompany them with something that's fat with a pH. Yes. <laughs> and, and you can and, do and, it and, um, yeah. and keep and the beat going. No one except your, your dad uh, did that system. Uh, right. Uh, no, but it's only a nickel harper system. I know, but now, uh, Ryan, we need to, to make a, a call to all the luthiers uh, <laughs> listening to this. Please, someone, copy this system. Please bring it back to the market. I need one. Come on. The, the, other, the main complication with it, why it's a bit dear to have made, is because I, I like wooden tangents. And if you've got wooden tangents, it means that you can't squeeze that many chanterelles onto yes. the top of the wheel. Um, and it's especially a problem for this string, the, the second keyboard, the, the other low G. So it's a low G viola, Corelli crystal, gut, and then another low G to match the first one. But it's so far over that if you were to play the upper notes, then it would be tending to push the string off of the back of the of wheel. Course. Yeah, so you right. lose all the pressure. So these are actually pivoted 
they're pivoted in a line very close to the line of the axle of the main wheel. So as the key comes in, it's actually pushing around. Mm. So it's following the shape of the wheel as it goes around. So it's keeping the pressure constant on the wheel. It's mm. doing that exactly. Yeah, it's like this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's, it's, they're, they're pivoted right at the bottom, those each, ta each tangent stem. So it keeps the pressure, you know, pretty much good enough, you know, constant. But that's an engineering solution, which is, you know, means lots and lots and lots of expensive little bits, you know. Oh, yes. Especially <laughs> at my dad's rate. Anyway, there yeah. he is. <laughs> he, he built that for me, wanted me to have one, and we were both annoyed to have lost it. But to get it back, you know, <laughs> was, um, yeah, insane. The one, you, time. the one you were just playing, was that the second one he built with the double keyboard? Yeah, this is the second one. Okay. He's made 17 altogether of the double keyboard types. Just 17. Oh just 17, yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I think uh, uh, I think um, as Wolfgang Valshalbama, uh, he's built a system, hasn't he, where you can play double keyboards, but where you have to press the key backwards or something. You, you can press it, but if you press it even harder, it it somehow activates another Ooh. string. I've never really quite worked out what it was, but it seems a bit hit or miss. But this one is obviously two completely independent fully functioning keyboards, you know, made with engineering. I'm sure Wolfgang's is as well, but I just don't understand Wolfgang's one. And yeah, yeah I've yet to one close up would be the trouble. <laughs> I never seen that system from Wolfgang. Uh, probably, uh, let's ask Wolfgang to, to come to the podcast, Ryan. Why yeah, not? Yeah, get on. Get into no, it. Himself. My dad we can ask him. <laughs> yeah, he'd love to know. We'd love to, well, I'd love to know. So we'll have to get Nigel back on the podcast too, so that he can ask the questions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'll find out. Yeah. We have ways of making him talk. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got a lot of questions for you today. And the first one, which is probably the most important, is um, this one. And uh, that is, you know, I went back through a lot of your work and looked at pictures of you playing and videos. And I never saw any where you were showing off your cleavage or wearing short skirts. So how did you get so good? Um, I got. So, how did I get so good? How did I get so good? Well, I, I copied. Um, I copied everyone else. Okay. Interesting. Who in particular? Um, well, having a sort of musical ear, I guess, which is lucky, isn't it? Um, I can copy um, other players. Well, Cliff Stapleton, really, to start with, um, and then Sam Palmer. Of course, they were both in Blozabella together, and. Mm. Imagine you know, you're a young chap and you're 15 and your dad's made this thing and you're getting crucified at school for being when it came out that you were making, that I was playing these things. You sort of look to um, other outlets to, a, to find some sort of call somehow. And hearing bands like Blozabella playing Cliff and Sam, you think, yeah, I could, I could do that. And if I was in that then that would really shut everyone at school and they'd think it was cool or whatever, you know, despite the fact that maybe it wasn't that much. So <laughs> and then I went to St. Chartier. The first year we went to St. Chartier was maybe, should explain, St. Chartier is a French, a French um, hurdy-gurdy, especially a French hurdy-gurdy festival, right in the middle of France, um, which happened every year from about 1977. It's where all the makers go to demonstrate their show their instruments and it's where all the sort of young hurdy-gurdy 
guys and uh, <laughs> people all over the world go to try and sit nose to nose and out hurdy gurdy each other. You know, it's what is warring young men mostly trying to outdo each other. And I, I saw Patrick Bouffard there and probably playing with maybe Gilles Chavanat. And I like Patrick's style particularly because it's so aggressive and for playing for dancing, it's, uh, it, it's what I wanted, I could see myself doing and watching that. And I was impressed by how the dancers were reacting to him and how he was in charge of the entire show and his buzzing was commanding the steps really of the dancers. And I thought, well, that is totally what I want to do. <laughs> and not only that, I'm going to, I want to do it better than him. You know, when, when you're 15, you know, when you're 15, okay. Yeah. And then there's Gilles Chabonat and he's admirable, isn't he? Because of his full range of abilities as well. And then I, I luckily got, um, uh, uh, I got the possibility of you know, being able to go and study with Valentin Clastrier. Just oh, me when I was 16, so I left Southampton all by myself with a pork pie and a bit of Edam cheese and got on the ferry and went to middle of nowhere in France <laughs> to study with Valentin Clastrier for a week. Um, mm. paid for by a, somebody who was a member of the hurdy-gurdy society in Britain, a, an American patron. I think he was a telescope designer. I wish I could remember his name. It, it was terrible. Anyway, he was, um, anyway, but he sent me to, to Valentin and you don't you really play when you're at Valentin's. Well, I didn't. I was too um, overawed, I guess. But Valentin has this big blackboard and he draws out all these circles with all the buzz positions on it. And he demonstrates one-to-one in this case over the whole week just me and him um and uh and he plays the beats and everything you're thinking oh well i'll when he's gone i'll give that a go but if you watch someone doing that with that amount of passion you know it's something that does sort of rub off on you you think oh yeah i could i could use that bit that little bit he did there where he goes da 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 i could use that and no i know no one in britain is doing that cliff can't do it <laughs> definitely they're too old forget it oh i can do this and then that'll really show show them so i was pinching little bits of inspiration i guess from valentine i couldn't there's no hope in hell i could ever get anywhere near it the the full package obviously it's a his his head is you know somewhere else um he's useful for pinching Mm -hmm. and patterns and stuff you can use elsewhere dead handy I can't remember the question. <laughs> oh, well, that was it. Because yeah, I, yeah. I copied all of them. Yeah. Copy everyone and practice a lot. There is no shortcut. <laughs> and I, I, I had my I had drawing musket as well to start with, doing uh, teaching me Baroque things. And uh, and then I joined Blows of Bella. And then th- this is the key to the whole thing. If you're in a really good band where the musicians around you are really nail the beats really, really well, you can't help but be good. You just have to either follow it or be damned, really, isn't it? Right. And then when you exactly, get a bit yeah. of confidence in yourself and you start deciding, well, actually, do you know what? I'm the drummer. I'm not going to listen to anyone else telling me where the beat is. You just get a sort of arrogance of a normal rock drummer <laughs> in the end. And you just decide that, you, yeah, everyone's going to follow you. And anyway, I've turned myself up to 11 and they're going to actually have <laughs> So there it is. These go to 11. Um, but that's playing for dancing, though. Which is um, this is not this is not for this is not a concert idea. I'm not I'm not listening to other people's opinion musically when I'm playing for dancing. I'm playing for those dancers on my own. If there's people around me joining in, well, good luck to them because <laughs> they're going to have to keep up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The important thing is that is 
watching the dancers and making them happy, you know, that's my mission really. So do you think it, I mean, would it make people better if they were able to play for dancers? Cause that was the I same think, thing in I Irish music. Yes, absolutely. Um, mm. uh, dancers though, mostly they're very experienced dancers often and they're used to dancing to no matter what even if it hasn't got any groove or any beat particular, <laughs> they're, they're there to dance and they'll make the best of it which is a bit of a shame really because if they just stopped dancing as soon as the groove was lost then that would be a lovely lesson for the musicians wouldn't it to make sure that they never ever allowed that to happen um uh but dan dancers dance differently when there's a lovely groove going they they smile and they feel relaxed and they know that they can go for a particular expressive turn or a twist or something because they know that the band isn't going to leave them hanging they're going to hit the they're going to hit the beat and they may even give them some syncopation beats as well that they can that can help them uh, dance better and it's just they smile more and they clap more at the end, you know. So it's, it's important if you play the dancing. Yeah, yeah. And so were you, other than kind of taking ideas from uh, these greats that you, you, you've mentioned, were you primarily self-taught other than that? Um, I would say, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I was playing along to um, Los Bello Records, but more particularly playing along to Viola de Bourbonnais. Uh, oh. that's that French trio isn't it that's um, Patrick um, uh, Frederick Paris um, the great Frederick Paris and um, Jean-Claude Blanc and uh, Bernard Blanc mm -hmm. so it's bagpipes various bag Bernard Blanc is a, a French the French bagpipe maker but they had a trio and uh, they play a lot of traditional things and other things as well that they've written but that was the, probably the most influential album because it's so funky and it's just, there's no drums. It's just two early gaddies or they swap around. And yeah, that's Frederick Paris and um, and, the, and the Blanc brothers. That was a really, they're really important to me anyway. So if you're playing along with these guys, you can't start dragging the beat. It's on a record. <laughs> you can't, you know, they're not going to listen to you, are they? You have to, you have to follow them. And, uh, and when you've got that sound in your head, I, I know where Frederick Paris, Paris was going to put that trumpet beat. So I make sure when he's not there, I put it in the same place. You imitate like a monkey what you've heard in a way. Yeah. Right. Until, um, until you develop your own style, I guess. I mean, that's a good, that's a good point. Uh, you know, you, you talk about playing for dancers, which is excellent, but I never really thought about it. Just getting some, some recordings of the people you like and trying to imitate where they are doing what they're doing. That's probably a wonderful way for people yes. who are getting started. And, 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 and especially along. the details. Yes. The, mm -hmm. the details get it really loud in your head or in the room on the hi-fi and, and play along. And, right. and, and hopefully you'll remember when it's just you on your own playing for some dancers, you'll remember that sound and mm -hmm. that whole pulse that was going on and um, hopefully be able to recreate it. But I suppose it takes a certain amount of arrogance to do that. I don't know. Or just <laughs> determined me memory. You know, you're not going to, you, know, you know what you like and you're going to copy what you like. Right. And um, you hope, guess you hope other people do too. <laughs> right. Well, if, if you get it right, you can't really go wrong, can you? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Sergio, I've been I've been asking most of the questions. I want to turn it over. Yes, to you, I'm so. I'm as as always I am mesmerized with the talk and I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so um Nigel, 
did you made your first Hardy Gardy? Is that, is I made that my correct? First, they're the best ones. How? <laughs> the best one. So, so how, how did all started? It was because of your dad. Can you tell yeah. us the beginning, the really, really beginning of the story? Literally at the beginning, then my dad worked for the Ministry of Defence, the MOD. That's the old War Office, and they made bits of military aircraft. And well, they don't know what they did. They were never told what they made. But it's my dad's official title is a fitter and turner which is um, the making of things out of metal, things that won't go wrong, things that somebody's uh, life, in a way, on the battlefield will depend on not going wrong. Okay. That'll work for the, for the military, yeah. Um, but, he, but in about 1970, late 70s, he saw um, a, a ghost story on the, on the BBC called Lost Hearts, And it's about this um, ghost boy who plays a hurdy-gurdy and he goes around um, stealing hearts out of... Or he had, no, he had his heart stolen by this serial killer, I guess. And he, and he walks and he moves around playing his hurdy-gurdy and every now and then you see there's a hole. But Dad liked the sound of it. <laughs> and, uh, and also, um, shortly after that, he saw another black and white, a black and white film called Captain's Courageous with Spencer Tracy and films in the 1930s. Okay. Oh, yes. Spencer Tracy is like a sea captain and he plays this hurdy-gurdy and, and a posh boy falls off of a passing cruise ship, a spoiled little brat. And this Spencer Tracy is a, a peasant fisherman playing this hurdy-gurdy and teaches this boy how to be a man. And um, dad will also like the sound of that. And then we went to the hurdy-gurdy society um, Uh, with the Dorian and Michael Musket Society mm -hmm. and with the cassettes of the sound of both of these things. And we were inquiring as to what type of hurdy-gurdy this was and what type of it, because the one he built by then didn't sound anything like it. Mm. Um, so um, we, like, the hurdy-gurdy society played, we played the tapes and the, the first one, the Lost Hearts was an Epinet de Vosges, like a sort of dulcimer going dong, dog, a dong, dog, a dong, dog. And we were wondering mm -hmm. why the hurdy-gurdy didn't sound anything like it. And then this, the Spencer Tracy film was um, a string quartet had been overdubbed over the whole... We were so... <laughs> in, in, oh, no! So it was like a string quartet, you know, with a <laughs> and all the moving bass parts. And Dad was going, oh, I like that. I, like, I think I'll try and make something like that. And, um, yeah, we felt so daft because the, the thing we'd made, the thing he'd made, I'm blaming him, just went, you know, well, you know what they sound like. Wasn't anything like it. So he was making the wrong thing to start with. <laughs> But why he wanted it, obviously, why he wants to do it is because it's a mechanical machine. It is, it is a machine, um, and he uses metalworking techniques really to build mm -hmm. them. He's, um, he, uh, he uses milling machines, and um, he, he hasn't got a circular saw. You know, it hasn't got any woodworking stuff. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's all uh, precision uh, machinery, and that's why they're so accurately made and why they've yet to fail, you know, in a crisis. It's the thing I was bore on about. You know, you want something when you're stood in front of some dancers and they're expecting the beat to be in the right place, you don't want something to fall off the hurdy-gurdy, do you? It's so important. did he build it at work then? Um, so he built some um, occasional bits at work um, in these, uh, yeah, he'd ask the foreman if there was, if he could have an hour and stay later and make some bits. And in those days you were allowed to do that. But um, no, he had a falling out with the guy at one, at, um, the, his foreman at work one day and he thought, oh, damn it, oh, I'm just going to go and do this. You know, I've seen, I'm having a midlife crisis. I might as well have a proper one. And then he got some um, uh, hurdy-gurdy plans from the muskets again, from Dorian and Michael Musket. Um, she's you know, departed, unfortunately. But anyway, so he, he 
got the plans from her and then set about, it was a Pajot loop body, the old traditional French one. And they copied it faithfully and it was, well, it was right, you know. I mean, Dad made it better than, you know, technically better than Pajot would have done, but Dad's an engineer. Mm-hmm. And that was the first one. And that's the first one I own. That's the one I play in Bozabella, my, my D, um, oh. decolored one. And uh, yeah, it took about th- two or three years, I think, before he sold the first one. But he'd made eight. He made a batch of eight to start with. So mm-hmm. a couple of years. And, but really, nobody was interested. I think they were 300 quid or something at the beginning. Now, this is, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is like a lot of money in those days, but not enough. Even then, I mean, my dad had never really valued his own... Um, work the, the value of his work because he was being paid by the government and probably not very well and you get into this mindset of the work that you do being of, of, of being the value that you were getting in your wages mm-hmm. so he was spending uh, he'd look at his instrument and go well I don't know I don't know what I don't know what to charge for it you know I've never done this before I don't know I think they were 300 quid and of course at that price no one was interested mm-hmm. Yeah, which is the exact opposite of what you hear these days that apparently the interest is supposed to be that they're going to be really, really cheap. Otherwise, you know, I'm not interested. Right. Um, it's, it's actually wrong. But Dad didn't sell them until he put the price up. He said, I'm not going to, if I can't sell one for 300 quid, all right, I won't sell one for 900 quid. Mm-hmm. So he put the price up to 900, sold one the next day. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. it was a real thing. <laughs> and the price proved it in those days. It was the right money for the right thing. Right. You know, it was, and um, and he, he'd respected his own work, and other people respected that too. It was a, it was a win-win. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then, then the waiting list went to three and four years and stuff. You know, oh, okay. There we are. So that's how we started. Don't be too cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it all started uh, because of your dad, and then you decide to make one your own. Um, yeah. It, well, the dad would take it, but dad was building eight. So it okay, was um, okay. it was absolute torture then, wasn't it, to see and make and sing? But um, uh, I think if, uh, one of my woodwork teacher at school had a book of "Learn Yourself How to Make Musical Instruments." There was okay. a heady in it, and it was by Zachary Taylor, who's um, not the president, American dude, <laughs> uh, you know, an old retired guy up in Nipswich somewhere, and he'd written this book on "Learn Yourself Instruments," and it was a th- simple three-string one with a wheel in the right place and nice big sized wheel and. <laughs> <laughs> the wheel was the right side. And the, <laughs> keys were, the keys actually worked, okay, and they were the normal keys. And really, really simple and great. And I added a trumpet, which didn't exist. And uh, Dad uh, gave me the handle and an axle system that you pinch from work, <laughs> and I put it in the first one. And um, yeah, it was only diatonic, so eight, st- eight notes then. And uh, then I built another one for my sister, and then we played duets at school. Oh, you know, the school nice. and stuff. And then dad finally finished, you know, started to finish the first of the batch. And, and then he handed me, obviously handed me the first one to try. And after you've spent a year and a bit playing, you know, a three string diatonic and you've got, now you've got minors and you've got, <gasps> and the trumpet sounds good and there's extra drones and the keyboard works this time because it's made accurately and everything. And it's, um, it, I, found I was a bit better at it than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it mm-hmm. played itself compared to the ones I made. And how old were you then? So that would have been 15, I would have been 16 then. Okay, um, when you built your first one. Yeah, 16 to 16 and a half, and it, Dad said took about a year and a half to build the first batch. Sorry, I was a dog going build the, build the first batch of eight, and um, so that would have, and I, he started when I was 15 then. So it would have been 16 and a half before I got the real one. 
And uh, then we went to St. we went to St. Chartier just before that. Dad didn't have a completed hernia; he just had a bag of bits um, in a in a plastic bag, and hoping to sort of impress the people there with <laughs> the potential of what this might be. Of course, nobody paid any attention, did they? And in the olden days, you had to have carnets to travel to abroad, you know, and um, horrific um, customs issues to do with um, exporting of bits. And they had to count all the bits and then we had to count them all back again when we got across the border back into England. It was horrific, like it's going to be. I know. Another story. (laughs) Of course. Um, Yeah, we won't. But um, yeah, uh, happily it all changed. And then the next following year, he built real hurdy-gurdies by then and we had a full stall at St Chartier and um yeah could stand with the rest of them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well before before we continue on with this uh you, we're, we're really cranking through some time here and some interesting stuff which is great um but i would like to listen to another one of your tracks uh kate at the gate from panic at the cafe so can we take hey, a moment listen to that with andy cutting the great andy cutting good 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 yeah let's take a moment and we'll have a listen to kate at the gate from panic at the cafe Thank you. 
It's a very nice album. Uh, this is one of the first uh, Hardy Gardy albums I, I, I heard in my life. Oh, good grief. <laughs> what, cassette? Maybe what, on cassette or was it on CD? Or, you know, uh, no, I, 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 I listened to it on, on, on CD or, or yeah, I, I, I maybe, maybe I found it on the, on the internet. But you ever was... want it on cassette? I've got 700 of them in my loft. No, <laughs> no, come on. Can, can we get a signed one? one? I could do you a side one if you can find an unsigned one. It's worth a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything you'd like to tell us about this album, Panic at yeah, the Cafe? Who, who is Kate? Who is Kate? <laughs> oh, yeah, who's Kate? Kate is um, a daughter of a friend of ours who bought a Hedy Gettier from from us, and she was about eight. And it, this, the story is actually really, really dull. I'm afraid I bought oh, a new oh, reverb machine, and it was like, <laughs> you get gate gated reverbs. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I was writing this tune, and and uh, I, you can type in names on the old um, uh, uh, effects, nineteen-inch effects racks, you know, right, for yes, one, yes. for later. And it was like Kate liked it. I just called Kate and her gate or something. You know, it's really and that's tedious. <laughs> lovely and romantic, doesn't it? Like a yeah, uh, <laughs> sort of get, uh, with all flowers and loveliness everywhere, and it was all crap. Yeah, I was, I, I was listening to it and I was just imagining in my mind that this was, you know, Nigel's first love and he was yeah, walking away from yeah, her. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, just think that then. Yeah, I'm really pleased with that one and um, it needs it, it needed Andy to really uh, make it. Um, Andy's ace. Andy's ace. I mean, what the great, wonderful accompanist, you know, and uh, my junior at the time and... Um, I tried not to patronise him and uh, treat him like a little baby brother, but it's hard to do when he's, you know, a little lad and he, he admired Rosabella and wanted to be on a stage with me and Ian and Paul and everything. And, yeah, that was early days. And uh, he's the great man, isn't he, now? So, yeah, he's on everything. It seems like everything I look up, there's like a yeah. reference to... <laughs> yes. <laughs> reference to I can't afford him. No one can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So just out of curiosity, you know, because it's the elephant in the room, uh, for some of us, at least me. Um, yes, <laughs> 94, right? <laughs> yeah, 94. Um, I'm just kind of curious, uh, and a little bit of background um, from my own perspective, uh, Led Zeppelin was all I listened to for pretty much my entire high school career. I was in a Led Zeppelin tribute band. I saw you, I believe, in 95 in Pittsburgh. Oh, um, long. Oh, yeah. Long. I didn't really have seen it. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I was there. <laughs> so, and that was the first time you'd seen one. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it was the first time I kind of knew what one was. I, I do remember seeing, you know, Paige with the the um, Autumn Lake thing, and Song Remains the Same. Oh yeah, yeah. yes. But then you, you, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did the unleaded bit, and um, I've got. I'm just curious about that. Number one, how did you get that gig? How did that come about? Well, I was um, in 1991, me and Andy just made Panic at the Cafe. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Blosabella had split up by then. And, and Andy was off playing with um, Chris Wood and, and the world and his wife, playing with everyone. And I couldn't really get him anymore. And um, I guess I can't really remember, but we, I'd run out of work. So I, I was decided I was going to get the whole thing up and be a courier driver. And that's somebody who drives packages around London, delivering stuff like a postman, like a private postman sort of deal. Um, I bought a little van and sat in a car park for two days waiting for my walkie-talkie to go off to go and collect some package from something. But no, 
I'm going to have one last <laughs> go. So I printed out some little business cards. I'm going to have one last go at being a hurdy-gurdy player. Oh, you know, it's got to be better than this. Um, so I'm going to print out a card, Nigel Eaton, hurdy-gurdy player, reasonable rates. <laughs> reasonable rates. And then the phone number. I thought, now I'm going to take this all around to all the studios because it only takes one nerk to be there and want to have me on and who knows what could happen. You, you know, never know. Yeah. Properly kick off. Um, and, and the next day, after having I'd driven around in my van, all the studios, the next day, um, Robert Plant phones up. Mm. It didn't mean anything to me. Yeah, did you know who he was? No, well, I, I, it, it rang a bit of a bell, but I decided it was probably, by the time I put the phone down, it was Robert Palmer, I decided, and I was going to go to the studio and meet all the girls playing all the guitars and all the drums and gang, all the whole bit. Um, and I ran to my Naomi in... in Sainsbury's I said Look, Robert Palmer's wrong I've got to go to a studio now it's like you know, I'm back um, and he said and when I got to the studio I went into the reception where I'd only been the day before two days before tops and um the girl in the reception was going oh yeah you came in yeah you'll never believe what happened about six hours after you left Robert Plant comes out about three in the morning going I've got to find me a hurdy-gurdy Oh he's my god, Paul I don't do accents, yeah. but he, when, he's, when he's being a rock star, he sounds like a rock star. Sound he, he puts on an American sort of twang. I've got to find, apparently, according to the reception girl, I've never actually <laughs> do anything like that. Um, but yeah, you know, and uh, she handed in the card, he said, Here you are, this fella came in uh, earlier, yeah. So I was there when all these hairy people, Robert Plant, his hairy band, right. and all people at Rack Recording Studio. Uh-huh. Where well, I did, where well, I played on I Believe and various other ones from Fate of Nations. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that that was all fine. I got me, got me 50 quid and everything. And then, really? Uh, um, and, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. This is another reason why I got the tour. Apparently, okay. I, I didn't know who they were, was why I got the tour. Uh-huh. If I'd been a sort of fan of theirs and they charged them accordingly, then I probably wouldn't have got it because they do not like being <laughs> overcharged with stuff because of who they are. <laughs> And, I, and anyway, I spoke to him like a normal person because I didn't know who he was. And I was disappointed that it wasn't Robert Palmer and all the girls. <laughs> <laughs> um, 18, and, and 18 months later then, I, he phoned me up again and said, I'm putting this thing together with Jimmy Page, who you might have heard. I was going, um, uh, <laughs> And um, we need you to come along and meet Jimmy and bring your hurdy-gurdy as well and some amplifiers so we can hear it. Uh-huh. And, oh, okay. um, and played the thing to him. And um, I looked the part at the time. I had hair everywhere and looked like a 28-year-old <laughs> rock star, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, me and Jimmy got on, and he had got on well. And he had brought his hurdy-gurdy with him, a little guitar shape. I think it's a Coulson. Oh, uh, an original Coulson? Oh. Yeah, uh, which I condemned as being a heap of junk, which it totally was. I mean, it was <laughs> fit up, fitted up by an idiot. And it was <laughs> Not that it mattered, because it's all part of that mysterious vibe that Jimmy has around him. It looked good in the video, and it was yeah. unique and whatnot. Um, so I played him the real one, what they can actually properly sound like as soon as you put the drones on, as soon as you whack out some thumping stuff. And uh, I heard no more again. And then uh, the manager phoned me up and said, well, we're doing Unplugged, and they both want you to be there, and mm-hmm. we're going to have to start rehearsing quick. 
um, says it was the Egyptian ensemble, wasn't it, with Paige Pierre? Yeah. Then, and Nash oh, yes. And singing and Battle of Evermore and everything. And then we went to Wales to a slate quarry and filmed all this stuff, you know, Nobody's Fault But Mine and uh, Levy Breaks, I think. Yeah. And mm -hmm. Black Dog and things. I wasn't on that one. Um, yeah. So, and then that was that. And then, uh, then at London Weekend Television, when we did the actual proper full um, unleaded show, um, there they said, well, do you want to come on tour with us? And I was going, well, yeah, I imagine like a couple of weeks, longest tour I'd ever done. It had been in West Africa with Bozabella for six weeks. And I was going, well, it can't be longer than that. And I might be able to get some tires for the van. <laughs> and it, be, um, it'll be two, probably a couple of years. I was going, two years? Wait a second. Two years? Oh, oh my God. Um, actually, oh, I, can't, oh, I, might, I might have time. I'll have to check my diary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. So then that was that. So the tour started down. We went into rehearsal and um, everything, and the tour started, and yeah, the rest is history, I suppose. But, um, oh. around, you, you know, it take, takes a certain type of instrument to be able to convince an audience of Zeppelin nerds, uh, you know, some of these big festivals, yeah. big stages, what um, to uh, be a convincing, big enough sound. So the Jimmy, no one's going to notice that Jimmy ain't there, right, for five minutes. <laughs> you can't do that with a violin or a dulcimer or some musical glasses or, you know, it's got to be something unusual, right. big sounding, but also familiar to diehard Zeppelin types. Mm -hmm. And of course, the early Geddy is totally in that they would have all known about um, Song Remains the Same and the links with the band. And then a presto, they get Robert introduces somebody who looks like <laughs> they, they should be there and they're playing this thing that's all plugged up right um but not knowing who they not knowing who they were definitely helped yeah because yeah. i yes. you, you can't be a fan and be on tour no one wants to have a fan on tour with you you know you've got to right. be, use their own chat i wish i could do it now because i'd be even more you know feel more equal but you know it was, it was different circumstances then i really needed really needed it really wanted it you know and so, so, so if if, yes. if I if I ever make it to the UK, I just have to act like I don't know who the f you are. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we don't like being sucked up to. You know, we hate it. I hate it. Everybody hates it. They hate it. They totally. It's a British thing. Yeah. <laughs> when you were when you were um, working on that unleaded project, did they give? Did you just come up with the hurdy gurdy parts on your own, or did they yeah. tell you what to do, or how? No, they, they never told me nothing. It's, um, it's definitely the Nigel Eaton sound. When you, yes, when you yes. listen to that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely. No, I think uh, they knew exactly what the effect was going to be on their own audiences. As long as I wasn't actually out of time, out of tune, or awful, right. it was going to be. It was going to be the job that that, it, that they foresaw it doing. They needed that moment um, for Jimmy to chill during mm -hmm. the three and a, three hour set, right? Mm -hmm. Really, mm -hmm. and um, it had to be something peculiar and. Uh, they, they, I could do it. I knew how to do it, you know. Right. And on those big stages, oh, well, I've been on stages since I was fifteen. But the big stages are somewhat different in a folk festival. You can see the whites of the audience's eyes, and you know damn well they can see yours, and that creates fear. Mm -hmm. Unless you're, <laughs> unless you're going to be, you know, the person you want to be. But when you first walk on stage, you're, um, you're somewhat nervous. But there was no nerves with something like those big 
uh, stadium gigs and arena gigs because you can't see them. You can't see the audience. And in your head, you're thinking they can't then for therefore. I mean, they, you know, you can see those big screens with your face four miles <laughs> off. But because you can't see them, you don't feel the fear and you can be whoever you want to be. Not, it's not really that. You, you, you're trying to be the person that they're expecting to see. The very first show, I think, was Pensacola. And I decided the way I was going to, I'd have dreamed before how I was going to do it. I was going to stand there all enigmatic and going, oh, those lovely chords, oh, lovely twiddly, twiddly, twiddly. And then I was going to go, dun, 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 be mysterious and peculiar. And, uh, and then it looked like I died. I saw the video back. Actually, this is, it, Michalina told us about this. Like like the, 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 the first time she, she was uh, playing with Elvati and, and the stage presence and how she, yeah. need, she needed to learn this, actually. So, so You have to run around. You have to be big. You have to move big. And then you look like a rock star. And it's not, yes. thing, it's not because you're a rock star. It's because if you don't do that, you look like a morons walked on stage and, you know, and made a bit of security. No, so it's quite good. It's like wearing a mask, I suppose. People say that, don't they? When they wear a mask, you can be somebody, you can be somebody else. But I wasn't really doing that. I wasn't promoting myself. I never felt I was doing it for me. Mm -hmm. I felt I was doing it, this might sound corny, for dad and the family and the hurdy-gurdy. I knew that the thing that I had in my arm was going to be so... I knew the effect it was going to have on the audience as well, because um, it's obvious when you when you plug this thing into a 200 kilowatt PA system, you could, play kazoo <laughs> you could play a kazoo through it and it's going to sound like Concord taking off. And they've got proper sound engineers at the back that is going to make it sound like absolute God. And you just trust these people to do their stuff. And they they do. You know, they're good at it. Um, so I was promoting the hurdy-gurdy, really. Um, and uh, yeah, and try and try not to let it down, right, right, and let Dad down, and, and just hoping it, everything was going to be all right, which of course it always was. But it, this is why I'm so deterred. That's why I get a bit narky when I'm. You see, hurdy gurdies that are sort of just about held together, mentioning no names, because I know what it's like to be backstage when it's two degrees, mm -hmm. when you're walking on stage and it's plus fifty five. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got gut strings. And how do you do that with something that isn't made by an engineering genius, <laughs> really? Mm -hmm. You know, it's essential if you're going to, if the early gate is going to be promoted and accepted as a real genuine thing, because there's a lot that can go wrong. We all know that. You want to make sure that it can't. And it's, uh, it's, it's tough. It requires engineering. So during in that, that time, was that, again, you know, I, I told you this in the, uh, the original t uh, messages we had before we, we did this, that I'm, I'm not really as all up on the hurdy-gurdy stuff as I need to be yet. Um, but at that time, when you were uh, doing this with Page and Plant, do you think that that was, was that the first real big um, showing of the hurdy-gurdy to the world on that kind of well, scale? I can't think of anything else other than that. Yeah. Probably, um, yes. We had Arcade Fire, wasn't it, after that? Regine came along, wasn't it, and did some stuff. And then, well, there was Lorena. No, that was me again. Right. Oh, yeah, that was you. <laughs> <laughs> that was me again. Sorry. Now, no, that, that was from Hossam Ramsey. Another long depart, recently departed Hossam Ramsey, the wonderful Egyptian percussionist who got me the Lorena gig. He's awesome. He yeah. was. Yeah, 1998. Did, um, did Mama's Dance with him um, and, uh, and Lorena McKennett and uh, went on Letterman and stuff. 
And, uh, you know, the riff, you know, the, the Mama's Dance thing, right. it was charted. They wouldn't let, I, I, I was about to do Letterman, this name dropping. I, mean, I was about to do Letterman. <laughs> it's happened every day. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I was trying to get into America and I had the wrong visa. Lorena's office completely balls up my visa. And I, they were about, the Americans were about to throw me out of America for being there a day early or a day late or something. And I said, um, uh, yes, but you, um, they want to know what this was. Thought it might have been a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> I said, wait, wait, wait. Did you say like number four? A bomb or a bomb? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lorena's back was all over America at the time. It was on, played on every radio station everywhere. I said, you know, have you heard that tune that goes da 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 I like that. He was I like that. It was that. Lorena is going to kill me, then you. <laughs> you go, oh, in. So the way to get into America with the, without the right visa, yeah, it was um, play with Lorena McKennett. Right. Uh, no, she's lovely, and um, yeah, really good. What um, what of all the stuff that you've done, of all the people you've played with, of all the stuff you've composed and, and put out, what are you most proud of? Do you um, have an aspect that you? Well, it's the it's the riff that can't be named, isn't it? It's a bit like no stairway. It's it's Hallsway. I like uh, it's not really. I don't feel I really even wrote that because it's not my usual sort of thing. Right. Now that that's come from absolutely nowhere. It was a buree to start with. Um, Hallsway Carol, it's called, mm -hmm. and Hallsway Scottish. Mm -hmm. And then a friend of mine wrote some lyrics, but it's not it's not my usual way. It would have been a buree. It was going it was going to be da 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 da. It was going to be minor as well and be a dark brooding thing. And by the time I got downstairs, it was already. Yes, and then then the beam <laughs> music followed, and then for the first time in my life ever, I managed to work out all the chords all by myself. Oh yes, um, and it really <laughs> and it really came together, and it was going. This is this is something now. I've yeah. never done this before. It's always my tunes always had a bit of an edge. They were not really complete, not really you know a whole package. Mm. But Hallsway isn't really my sort of area. Um, as you know, but it has, yeah, as soon as you make it minor, it becomes mine again. Da, 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 da. That's Nigel's own, right? It's, it's doom and gloom. Um, yeah, so that one, I suppose. And, uh, well, the, the, the Lorena riff, that was, that was used a lot. Mama's Dance was used a lot. Very nice. Um, I like that. I don't know where that came from either, but that was it. Um, Real World Recording Studios then uh, with her, and it's such a lovely studio, and she looks after you. And you get breakfast and things, and there's a <laughs> table tennis table, and everything is made so that you can feel really chilled. So that so that if you're so that when you're in the studio and you've got your headphones on, you feel great, you know. And and then things like those sorts of riffs can happen because you're mm. in that sort of lovely space. Yeah, but it's, coming back from things like that tour and playing with Lorena, you have to remember who you really are because you're being told for two years, three years that you're great because you because they had this crew, everyone wants to build you up to be, to make you feel like a rock star. There's a, there's a jet and stuff, you know, you can order your dinner and there's your own jet, you know, there's 12 of us, all right, small jet, uh, with a lady on it who brings you your dinners and stuff, you know, and, and it's all set up so that when you walk on stage, you you don't let anyone down, I guess is right. what it is. And that's what mm -hmm. like, it's important, you know, for them. <laughs> you know, but when you come home, you have to remember you can't you can't <laughs> get arsy with the wife and wonder where your gin why your gin and tonic is. It's that <laughs> next to your <laughs> next to your jet. 
Yeah, um, <laughs> you have to remember <laughs> you really are. That's good. Yeah. Well, before we move on, uh, some of the questions Sergio has, let's take a moment to listen to uh, The Duelists. Cool. Oh, yes. Yeah, so we'll, we'll have a listen to The Duelists. And, oh, I like um, The Duelists. Oh, yeah, Duelists is my one. That's my, that's my favourite one. That's my area. Oh, yeah, you can play that one. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> right. well, here we go. This is the duelist. to the Hurdy Gurdy Cafe podcast. We're here with Nigel Eaton and Sergio Gonzalez. And we just got done listening to The Duelists. And this is track number three from the album, The Duelists, correct? It is, yeah, with um, the great Ian Luff. Yeah. Oh, uh -huh. 
I'm gone. And um, and Andy Cutting, the great. Yeah. yeah, again, yes, yes. And this is one of your favourites too. Well, I wrote that on tour with Paige Plant, so I was bored silly at the back of the stage. You've got to remember that um, I was only on stage for no more than about 20 minutes, half an hour on a two and a half hour set. There's a oh. lot of hanging around, and that's the thing backstage for me. I can't go and play on a whole lot of love, you know, really, or Kashmir. It doesn't work. Change his key. Can't change key, see? It's a disaster. Kashmir's just in D, though. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's key. You, you can't get a semitone for the best bit at the end. It's hopeless. Yeah. Oh, no, hold on a minute. I need to just... Well, wait a <laughs> <laughs> oh, can we wait, please, a minute? Um, yeah, so I wrote that backstage. We were in Japan. So I, I was trying... I was going... Ding, and it, no, I'm, I, won't do, I won't do the Japan music. <laughs> I was going... Okay, I was going... Da, da, da. This is sounds exotic. It's definitely oriental. And... Uh, and yeah, and that, that popped out as well, but it was my area, and um, yeah, I was, I was very pleased with that one. Nice. Okay, nice. It's tough on you, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, we ask this question to everybody that comes uh, here to the podcast, and now is your turn. Uh, can you name your top three or top five or top 20, it doesn't matter, uh, players? So, do you get any players? Yes, or the oh. ones that, that were most influential, like for you. Oh, that, that's Cliff, Cliff Stapleton. Of course. Uh, Sam Palmer. Um, and they play well, so well together. Uh, Sergio Gonzalez, obviously. Oh, yes, of course, me. Um, <laughs> but apart from him, it would have been mainly, um, well, Patrick Bufa, a combination of um, Steve Tyler, of course. You know, it's never, you know, you've had Steve on, right? Yeah. Steve yes. Tyler. I mean, I, I can never tell if you liked him or not. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've never really spoken to him for a very long. He stayed in the house, but he's quite quiet, isn't he? Yeah. And he talks about medieval things. And I, I don't know what he's on about. Yeah, I, know, I know he's lovely. And he plays, you know, he rocks, doesn't he? You've got to play with people that rock. And he really does. And we've done a few duos together, yeah. you, know, um, you know, not official ones and that. But, yeah, no, we play the same way, except he's got all the... the that, that is, the trumpet technique is so solid. I mean, I could never have the discipline to create that i have done it in the past but not yeah. not in his way it's so crisp yes but he's british and he's the other british early gurdy player and that's <laughs> to sort of go yes well he's definitely the one because he, he can't be can he because he's the other british one right um pudgy Buffar and um well Gilles, obviously valentin clastria but i mean these people are you know valentin is, and Gilles. they're um yeah, he's an icon. They're yeah. really serious, aren't they? They know their stuff and their musical um, proper bods. And I'm just a yob, really. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I do. I do what I do, and it's best I just stick to it. I think. Mm -hmm. Steve's really tight, but the most influential would probably be Cliff and Sam and Michel Fromenteau, Claude Flagel as well. He, the, the, Michel's gone, isn't he? Do, do you know the name Claude Flagel? Big friends with Michel Fromenteau, and he I did. Don't. Lovely recordings with orchestras back in the 70s then at the Revival in France then um, with orchestras and he did um, uh, Corette and Baton stuff with big orchestras and it's and he's playing a big Pajot and it sounds so fabulous in a room with an orchestra. I'd like to do that one day myself rather than just a quartet. Mm -hmm. um, I did the Four Seasons, but that was with a small quintet. Oh. <laughs> Play with a big orchestra has got to be great, isn't it? Maybe one day. We'll do, you have any, do you have any recordings of the Four Seasons? Um, yeah, so that was on a, an album. Um, it was with a, an ensemble called the Palladian Ensemble. Okay. Palladian. We need and, to look um, for that. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. And that's, um, that's me playing the Fort, the, the, uh, the Shedville 
version of the Four Seasons, obviously not the proper Vivaldi one. It's the one that was cobbled together for drone instruments by Nicholas Shedville um, back in the day, 18-something or other, 18, early 18th century, isn't it? Mid-18th century. And Jean-Pierre Raoul playing Musette de Cour, the oh, small, yes. um, the little ivory, you know, the baby little, like an Northumbrian pipe, but shorter, the French one, Musette de Cour, yeah. the court bagpipe. With him, and with him and the Palladian Ensemble, but it's not really my area because it, it requires <laughs> practice and the knowledge of Baroque music, which I was supposed to have been learning when I went to Guildhall School of Music, didn't bother doing. Because uh, you, you, you were studying cello, didn't you? I, yeah, only for 10 minutes because my sister was doing <laughs> it. I found one at a car boot sound. I got to grade five. Grade five's a lot when you're a yob living in Southampton. But happily, Dad came along and um, made these things, and that that saved me from ever having to go to a cello lesson ever again <laughs> or engaging with reality in any way. So it was, uh, yeah, it was good. Well, that, that's usually the question that, that, that we that we end on. But I'm curious do you do you both have time for maybe two more? Yes, I, and, and maybe for three more. <laughs> okay, I've got all the time in the world. All right, great. Well, the, the question I was curious about, um, so, you know, obviously, and this comes from Scott Marshall, by the way. Oh, so, oh dear. So, so, yeah, so Scott Marshall, uh, he, he, he mentioned this, he said, as a god of hurdy-gurdy and the son of a legendary luthier, how do you see the current scene, like the current uh, hurdy-gurdy scene? How do you feel about it, participate in it? I, I, well, it's getting mega, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's getting, um, it's, it's this pirate thing. It's, it's, it's black sails and stuff, isn't it? It's really drawing people in. I'm glad, actually, I'm talking to you because of your previous knowledge of me when early girdies were early girdies, because they've yeah. seen it not been, haven't they? They've been a, a, a peculiar sounding uh, film um, sound effect, mm -hmm. really. And uh, the hurdy gurdy world, of course, um, is loves its own scene, doesn't it? And wants to grab in things that are popular um and uh and there's been well there's a lot of criticism to be <laughs> made of a lot of um, recent instruments as well we won't go into that mm -hmm. but there's um it's it's to it's to fuel the scene it's to um supply the the burgeoning how do you get the burgeoning is that getting bigger burgeoning yeah, yeah. that seems like the right way to get yeah. bigger um scene and it and it's some um, supply supply and demand i suppose and when you hear um the hurdy-gurdy sound on things like black sails or on pirate stuff or game from that it's not <sighs> going to be a proper player playing it is it it's not going to be Gilles Chabonat really banging some stuff out it's going to be a, it's going to be a whatever the composer thinks an hurdy-gurdy is from watching it on you know a, a cartoon show or something or watching it on the Polar Express where it's being played upside down. <laughs> I'm endlessly in film sessions where I'm overdubbing, you know, the Hurdy Gurdy play where they've got some poor extra into, you know, where they've been handed a machine, Hurdy Gurdy, and been told them they're always doing it like that, aren't they? Sort of thing. Down, Yeah, but it's. Uh, I don't see it as a major problem that there's lots of um, quite poor quality hurdy-gurdies being made because it, it does keep people going for just long enough to allow them to discover what they really are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, those that fall by the wayside, well, they, they might have fell by the wayside anyway. Right. I mean, the first ones I made were, um, were awful, um, but they, they worked long enough for a year and a half for my dad to hand me a real one 
Right. And yes. there was no anyway. There was no escape for my in my case. I'm the only one where that couldn't escape really mm -hmm. um, the whole scene because my dad was doing it, you know, actually doing it for real. Mm -hmm. um, it's got, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, generally, yeah. Um, I just wish some of the instruments were um, that they that they looked like they're taking the mick. <laughs> I think <laughs> out of there, it's disrespectful. I think to make something so badly. And knowing that it's that bad, mentioning no names, because the people that are making these things sometimes have owned hurdy-gurdies and, and quite good ones, you know, mm -hmm. and they, they own instruments that at least do work, yet they're trying to sell something which they know can't. And that seems dishonest, and I don't like that. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I worry about that. But looking, looking on the positive, um, I think we're going to get lots more... Uh, really good players coming up in the future and they're going to be young and they're going to, um, they're going to really mean it. Right. Like I did. Yes, yeah. of course. And we were talking about the uh, black sales, but I have a EMDB open here with your name on it. Hey. <laughs> so um, we know you, you played in, in, in uh, quite a lot of movies actually. And also yes. you acted, right? Well, I do a bit of film extraing. Well, I, I did a film called, um, Tulip Fever back in 2014 and um, yes. I was asked to provide lots of tunes for it actually and put a little group together which I didn't have to do in the end it was put together for me but with really great people in and I wrote loads of tunes for it um, yeah and I, I love being in the film set so much I just decided <laughs> to do it you know at extras rates you know because I loved it so much that's why people do it, I suppose they like the gear and that cuts and the action and you know and they can you can tell your mum that you've been in something can't you I still love all that <laughs> what um what advice do you have um for new hurdy-gurdy players and I'm curious about what your advice if it would be different for people who like you who are younger 15 or younger or like me who just started you know a few years ago who's just turned 40 and so on like is, is would you give different advice for those uh for those groups of people I would say um save up and get something well listen to the listen to the folks on hurdy gurdy community there's yeah. people on there that have been collecting for 30 40 years i was on the phone to curtis barack yesterday he's got instruments dating back to 1720s hundreds of them really mm -hmm. important instruments there's collectors on there there's people like scott gaiman who know everything and are interested in the history of this stuff you know i've only i've only got a passing interest in that I, my interest in is showing off the dancers that's you know you know that's my only interest um and listen to them listen to the people on there that are saying that you need a a, a good simple well-made instrument that isn't gonna sound awful or be a or be torture to set up every morning when you want to pick it up you want it to work mm -hmm. otherwise we are going to lose people mm -hmm. um say save up I built my first, it's difficult for me because I built my first nerdy girdy. I built my first nerdy girdy like people build their first nerdy girdies. Oh, exactly. They, they, they build their own ones. And that, that's a lovely training, really, because if you can make something, they're a practical machine. If, you can, if you've got, had a hand in making one or seen one being made in front of your eyes, you instinctively start to understand how they're so that that's got to be good if you put a lot of people aren't practical these days they don't make things they sit in front of computers they don't build things with their hands and that is a pity and the only way therefore i think to get a, get around that is that people should save up 
and get something good to start with that everybody says is good. You know, the, 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 the good people say are good, nerdy gurdies, TPVs, Trowneckers, you know, Robert Mandel's. Um, and Henri um, Calibri, the Calibri made by Henry yes. Manal, you know, Sergio's got one. I mean, it's a little baby. <laughs> why, would, why would you ever need anything? That's that's all I ever started with, and that's made far better than mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all you'd ever need. I don't see the need to try and um, make some super wow gizmo when it can when it can be that simple. And really, if you, I, I don't know, I don't want to sound like um, seven hundred quid isn't a lot of money, but that hurdy-gurdies are peculiar. It's like trying to get into the harpsichord chord world. Right. Um, you know, if that's what your desire is, there are certain realities, unfortunately. You have to just save up or beg, borrow, and, borrow and steal until you can <laughs> get something, you know, that's um, not going to actually hurt, hurt your progress in the future. Right. Yeah, it's, um, yeah I, think, I think it'll all be okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, there'll be, there'll be uh, you know... Um, don't want to say the word revolution. It will be fine in the end and people will, people will work out what's what. You can't gaslight people forever. Right. Um, Hurdy-gurdies are real genuine things and there are certain realities to do with them that they have to be machines, engineered, hit behind the scenes engineering mm-hmm. that you don't even know is there, but it's, it's stuff that's got to be made by either brilliant people or fabulous machines that can do it. Right. And uh, we're not seeing a great deal of that at the moment, are we? But um, anyway, that, that's, that's fine. Hurdy-gurdies are always been peculiar. They'll always have a limited um, actualness in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, that's just the reality of it. Yeah. I like being peculiar. We like being peculiar, don't we? We, (laughs) Yes, of course. That's why we play. (laughs) Yeah, that's why we do. We want a million. We want everybody to play, and otherwise, there wouldn't be any us, would there? (laughs) (laughs) No, that is (laughs) elitist. It's all right. (laughs) Well, you know, all of that. <laughs> the, the, the thing I, I always, when I, I'm watching the Hurdy Gurdy Cafe, they're talking about getting together in groups with other Hurdy Gurdy players. I'm like, why the hell would you want to play with another Hurdy Gurdy player? Don't you want to be the Hurdy Gurdy player in the group? <laughs> yeah, but when you get when you get two together, they look so cinematographic as well. If if both players are doing same there, right? Those French weddings where you get pairs of them, it looks so filmic, and they really should do a film about some. You know, uh, Metro Sonner, the Georges Sand novel, all about the hurdy-gurdy players at, back in the day in the 17th century, uh, sitting nose to nose out doing each other. The same as we, I was doing with Patrick back in the 80s. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a great films to be had. But they sound greater than some of their parts when there's two. Okay. It's like having, a, I, make, I make cupboards. Having one cupboard is brilliant. Having two looks like, makes a room look amazing. And, and two hurdy-gurdies do the same thing and you it has to be the right other person steve tyler would be good patrick buffer would be good yeah yeah you've got to have people that rock and, well, that's, um, that, that's a good thing i don't you know i'm, I'm not anywhere near another hurdy-gurdy player so i'm looking forward to the day when i can actually play with <laughs> another yeah, hurdy-gurdy yeah. player or play with somebody who's got a natural groove i mean the people i play with like andy cutting or um jimmy page or Julie Murphy, sing, sing, even singers can rock. And the great mm-hmm. Ian Luff are playing with people. that They've all got one thing in common. They all know where the beat is. Right. And they can, they can get you out of, uh, out of trouble if you start being a bit too flash and you've lose the, 
lose the beat somewhere, you can rely on these people, be on, being on stage with them, and they'll pull you out of a hole. And you can sometimes do the same for them. You know, you've, you've got to play with people who can rock. And it doesn't really matter what they play. They can play an ocarina. If, yeah. they're, playing it, if they're playing it funky, yeah. then that's going to that's gonna do something to you. You'll play differently with them. Right. Uh, well, that's good, because I actually do have a very wonderful violinist that I play with, and she has impeccable timing. So that's good to hear that it doesn't have to be another very yes. player. <laughs> yeah. It's all you need. Good, good. Well, this will, I think we're getting towards the end. Sergio, do you have any other questions? Uh, yes. My last question, because I'm, I am very, very curious about this. I play uh, quite a lot of, of, of tunes uh, composed by Nigel, and um, <laughs> uh, all of them rock. So... <laughs> Uh, I'm very curious. How do you approach composition? Like, do you are you like improvising and then you catch the the good yes, things? So. Probably the same way you do. I mean, I, um, I I tend to write a tune when I get a new bit of gear or a, a new um, effects pedal or a, okay. even a new cable. But especially <laughs> when you get a new herdigator, I, I used to get them from um, French eBay and have Dad do them up to keep him interested. He's sort of retired, but he likes to fiddle around with these things and he, he, he delivers them back to me and they've become a proper uh, they'd be a, maybe a Pajot but with all proper a running gear in them they, and now they work okay. and you start fiddling with it and um, it's gone a bit out of tune and you've got the moose string maybe in a slightly different tuning and there's you throw your hand in and something can pop out at you can't it it can go da 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 you know you go <gasps> Oh, 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 where did that go? You know, and um, sometimes it's handed to you um, <laughs> from the ether. And sometimes you have to work at it, and they're the ones that aren't so good. They're mostly handed to me by um, by my muse, I guess. I mustn't mm -hmm. offend her. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Sergio, who's your muse? We need. Who is my muse? Oh my god! <laughs> I don't think I have one of those because I don't compose much. Uh, well, we'll have to get you one. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for being here, Nigel and Sergio. It's really wonderful to um, to speak thank with you. you. Yeah, great. Thank you for asking me. And we're going to finish up with um, a recording. Uh, now, this this recording comes from that that YouTube video you sent me from the VH1 interview. And it, it has the title Laride or L-A-R-I-D-E under it. Yeah, Larry Day. Larry Day. Larry Day, okay. Larry Day yes. Sorry, my French is not that good. <laughs> no, no, I noticed that before on another Yeah, show. yeah. So anyway, um, so this is a tune that you wrote as well, correct? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, Larry Day, there's a million Larry Days. They're, oh, Breton, okay. they're Breton dances. Um, I think Larry Day is actually a type of dance rather yes, than yes, a name right. for a tune, isn't it? And they, you get Larry Day 1 and Larry Day de San Marlo and Larry Day de some other town in Brittany. Okay. And um, it's just one of them. But this this was the one that I um, played for with the Page Plant um, right. tour because it's so simple. And um, you can do the um, Radio Gaga clap <laughs> if there's 125,000 of you. Right. And that it works in that level and you can build it up with quiet and you go to the chords and then you can hit them with the tune. I didn't write it. I wrote all the fancy stuff all the way around it, but okay. it's a on traditional folk tune, tune. Larry Day de somewhere or other. I don't, I've never known. Nobody ever knows. Nobody knows. Well, I'm going, I'm going to try to learn it your way. So we'll see how it goes. But um, all right. Well, thank you for being here. And um, we'll see you again next time on the Hurdy Gurdy Cafe podcast. So take care. Yes. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you.